Hi folks and welcome to You're On Crack Mate, the podcast that takes a deep dive into movies, television series and slices of pop culture that'll often make people ask, are you on crack mate? I'm your host Sean Ferrick and this week we're looking at Get Out, released in 2017. Get Out is writer-director Jordan Peele's debut picture under his monkey paw banner in association with Blumhouse Horror and Universal Studios. Sorry man. Get out! Yo! Get Out was an immediate hit, premiering at Sundance barely two days after Donald Trump was sworn in as president. It is a film that firmly takes the hand of its audience, not holding them, but dragging them along Daniel Kaluuya's gradual discovery of the horrors that await. The film opens with the pursuit and abduction of a black man, Lakeith Stanfield's Andre, in a quiet, leafy suburb and eventually finishes with flashing red and blue lights bearing down on Chris, his hands raised in the air. The imagery was provocative, challenging, and of course, deliberate. But how and why did Jordan Peele come to create such a story? How much of it is based on his own experience? And what does it truly mean, both in 2017 and 2022, to live in a post-racial America? Let's dive in. Before we discuss the idea of a post-racial America, we must first learn about the writer and director of Get Out. Jordan Peele came to prominence thanks to being one half of the comedy duo Key and Peele, with his longtime collaborator Keegan-Michael Key. Their show, which aired for five seasons on Comedy Central, often took a direct humorous approach to depicting racism in the world, both contemporary and historical. Though Key appears in a vocal cameo in Get Out, this is entirely a Peele production. Born and raised in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Peel grew up as the child of a white mother and an absent black father. He would describe the issues he would face when it came to defining his racial identity, particularly when it came to standardised testing, often unsure which box to tick, Caucasian, black or other. His dark skin would mean that he would be identified immediately as a black man, though it has also led to perhaps one of his most famous career moves, that of impersonating President Barack Obama. He, along with Key as Luther, Obama's anger translator, often appeared, delivering an uncanny likeness that helped gain him a huge fanbase. Peel first went into comedy after attending Sarah Lawrence College. He had intended to focus on puppetry, but improv quickly became his main interest. He would drop out of college after two years to focus on comedy full-time, forming a comedy duo with his friend, classmate and future Key and Peel writer, Rebecca Drysdale. This would lead him overseas, performing at Boom Chicago in Amsterdam. It would also help to prepare him for his stint on Mad TV, marking the birth of his relationship with Key. Peel credits his interest and experience in comedy as crucial to his understanding of horror. In both, timing is everything. A joke can live or die on the delivery of the punchline, which in horror, if the scare comes at just the right moment, you can have a classic on your hands. It was the classics that inspired much of Get Out. Novelist Ira Levin probably has the most direct influence on the plot of the film. His works, Rosemary's Baby and The Stepford Wives, are both spiritual prequels, in a sense, to the events of the film. Like Peel, Levin was a New Yorker, born there in 1929. Rosemary's Baby, by far his most well-known work, is set in the Upper West Side. In fact, the building was located only a very short distance from Peel's childhood home. This, as Peel described, made the events of the novel a little too close to home. 
Rosemary's Baby deals with Satanism and occultism masquerading in society behind smiles and friendly neighbourhood house parties. Rosemary Woodhouse becomes a pawn in both her husband and neighbour's plots to please the devil, with her body being usurped as a vessel for his spawn. The film adaptation, starring Mia Farrow as Rosemary, uses a strongly dreamlike atmosphere to play with the viewer. Is what's happening actually real, or is it all in Rosemary's head? Though there is no doubt by the story's close, this nightmare is borrowed by Peel for Get Out, playing with the viewer, letting them know just enough to understand that not all is right with the world. This is no dream, this is really happening! With Rosemary's Baby, the Stepford Wives is a key inspiration. In the small town of Stepford, something is very wrong with the women. Once CEOs and activists, they are slowly becoming subservient and docile housewives, intent only on pleasing their husbands. Joanna watches this happen, sharing jokes with her friend Bobby, until even Bobby seems to have been sucked in. This deceptively light story is an acutely dark tale about the male revenge fantasy, stripping feminism away, putting women in the kitchen where their husbands believe they belong. How then does this inspire the events of Get Out? Let us first look at the setting in which the film takes place. Chris and Rose, a mixed race couple, are travelling to meet her white family for the first time. Chris asks if they know he's black, in a move deliberately set up to ask the audience the same question, Rose responds with, should they? The message is clear. Assuming there would be an issue is an issue itself. All of this occurs in the state of New York, typically known for its liberal inhabitants, crossing a wide variety of social standings. Rose's family live in upstate New York. Though the film was shot in Alabama, Peel emphatically wanted to avoid any illusions that the film was set in the South in Get Out. The Armitages live in a somewhat remote locale, in a large house surrounded by ample gardens. The imagery of the plantation is there immediately, offset by the words being spoken. However, looking at the design of their home, while the house is large, it does not match the stereotypical plantation mansions so often depicted in the media. There are only two people, Walter and Georgina, who work for them. Though both are black, the Armitages assure Chris that they are like family to them. The house itself is a little closer to the truth of plantations than we may initially believe. Not every one of them came with an enormous mansion. In fact, often it was merely the size of the grounds themselves that was the important part, for it was the output of the plantation that defined its worth. Cash crops, harvested for profit with enough surplus to feed the masters and workers, were more common. Though mansions were very much an image to be associated with the South, the Armitage's house is an accurate depiction of what many of the southern white landowners' homes would have looked like, despite its northern setting in the film. Donald P. McNeely writes in his novel Old South Frontier, Cotton Plantations and the Formation of the Arkansas Society that, despite the image that has bled into the media of plantations with dozens of black slaves, many of them would have fewer than five, in these cases, at least in the southern state of Arkansas, these slaves would farm rather than pick cotton, oftentimes along with the farmers and sons. In Get Out, Walter and Georgina have free reign of the house and, though clearly subservient to the Armitages, they appear to enjoy their work. Clearly, this is a front, with the reveal making their outward amicability even more gruesome. Before we get to that, however, 
Let us discuss our two main characters in the film, Chris Washington, played by Daniel Kaluuya, and Rose Armitage, played by Alison Williams. No, 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 who Jordan Peele had spotted in 15 Million Merits, the 2011 episode of Charlie Brooker's Black Mirror. There, Kaluuya plays a man who is both a prisoner of, and contributor to, a system that rewards obedience and punishes defiance. Everything is performative in the eyes of the establishment. For him, Peele's script took the notion of being the only black man in the room and ran with it. This is something both men felt was key to the film's success. Kaluuya related that, as a black man, he had attended many parties growing up in which he was the only black man in the room, feeling a sense of isolation and otherness. In 2013, he sued the London Metropolitan Police after he was accused of dealing drugs. He countered that he was racially profiled and the excuse was meritless. The incident that resulted in impressing charges against the Met Commissioner Sir Bernard Hogan Rowe on behalf of the force saw him dragged off a bus, pinned against a shop window, kicked in the legs and stomach, held down with a boot on his head before being held for four hours in a police station, all without any evidence whatsoever of any wrongdoing. A medical report that followed showed internal bruising to his ribs, chest and back. Now we'll discuss the fallout and lasting impact of this event in Kaluuya's life a little later in this podcast. This is, in a way, reflected in a scene of the film. While driving to the Armitage's house, Chris and Rose make small talk in their rental car before, quite suddenly, a deer jumps in front of them. Though they slam on the brakes, they collide, resulting in enough damage that they need to call the police. When an officer arrives, he asks for Chris's ID, despite the fact that Rose was driving the car. While this scene has two major meanings to the film as a whole, looked at in isolation, it is a depressingly unsurprising request from the officer. In this affluent area of upstate New York, Chris, without opening his mouth, is automatically seen as other by the officer. Though the man pretends to be simply doing his job, Rose, quite correctly, demands to know why he is asking for Chris's ID. As presented, it's the first open example of racial profiling in the film, with Rose seeming to understand exactly what's happening. Her defence of Chris seems to come from a righteous anger in the face of the policeman. No, no, no. He wasn't driving. I didn't ask who was driving. I asked to see his ID. Yeah, why? That doesn't make any sense. Here. No, no, no. Fuck that. You don't have to give him your ID because you haven't done anything wrong. Maybe, baby, it's okay. Come on. Anytime there is an incident, we have every right to That's ask. bullshit. So, it seems like Rose might be a good friend to have in this kind of situation, right? Alison Williams stars as Rose Armitage, Chris's partner. She seems to be the perfect girlfriend. Fun, caring, understanding, and in the face of the cop, fiercely loyal. Williams plays her to perfection. Get Out, released in 2017, came on the heels of her performance in HBO's Girls, a joint Lena Dunham and Judd Apatow production. While the show received critical acclaim across its six seasons, a consistent criticism was the lack of racial diversity. While arguments abound as to the fairness of singling out girls when so many, many network shows fail to display a true diversity, in the context of William's character in Get Out, 
It becomes oddly ironic. Chris and Rose discuss the fact that he is the first black man that she will be taking home to meet her parents, which makes him hesitant while she placates him. This, of course, is later revealed to be far from the truth. When viewing the film as William's next venture, there is an ironic twist in the character. If girls could be criticised for being too white, then this could be an insidious turn on a theme. Rose, it is revealed, only brings home black partners, male and female, to her family to bring into the fold. The layers of lies don't stop there. It is difficult to discuss Get Out without the great reveal at the centre of the movie, so from here on, let us assume that everyone listening is aware of the great twist. It is perhaps one of the most shocking, unnerving, depressing reveals in recent cinema history, made worse by the false warmth in which it is delivered. The use of black bodies by these white socialists, while the original owners of those bodies are still aware of what's happening, is horrific. Buried in the sunken place, these poor people must observe their new owners walking and talking, appearing as them, speaking as others. The idea is rooted deep within the history of the abuse and rape of black people in America and beyond. It is ludicrous enough that it veers towards science fiction, yet played straight, as though any of these actions may be occurring behind the closed doors of those smiling white folk. Let us look now at the comparisons between Get Out and The Stepford Wives, Ira Levin's shocking story of control, also set in a seemingly idyllic white neighbourhood. In the town of Stepford, something is very wrong with the women. Joanna Eberhardt has just moved into town with Walter and her two children. She is a feminist, having been involved in activism previously. Walter is seemingly her equal in this respect, championing her attempts to wake the women of Stepford to action. He joins the Men's Association, an archaic yet potentially useful club that is, by definition, for the men of Stepford only. He claims to want to try and change it from the inside. Joanna isn't thrilled, but trusts him. In her turn, she meets Bobby, another woman who is much like herself, and Charmaine, a resident who seems to care little about her husband. Charmaine is the first clue as to what is really happening in Stepford. Overnight, she goes from a powerful, sexually liberated free thinker to a docile stay-at-home wife, obsessed with the housework and making her husband happy. Deeply disturbed, Joanna and Bobby resolve to discover what is truly going on. At home, Walter and Joanna seem to still be equal, yet there is a steadily growing trench between them. Despite the women's efforts to wake the townswomen up, Bobby falls victim to whatever is happening, switching from the passionate activist that Joanna knew one day to that same docile and subservient wife the next. The final reveal, that the wives in Stepford are being murdered one by one and replaced with robots, has led to the phrase Stepford wife entering the public lexicon. It is this idea that carries forward into Jordan Peele's script for Get Out. In many ways, the black people populating upstate New York are a new sinister twist on Levin's 1972 idea. Lisa A. Keister writes in her novel Inequality, a contemporary approach to race, class and gender, that around the turn of the 20th century there came a rise in the cult of domesticity. This was a value system in place in white upper and middle class homes in the United States that emphasised a woman's embodiment of virtue. This gained traction in response to women entering the workforce toward the end of the 19th century. Levin's take on this idea was an imagined response to the free-thinking women's liberation movement of the 60s. In 2017, 
This was adapted by Peel as a response to the continued strive for equal rights by black people in the United States and the response by white people in power. The use of black bodies for labour, professional or pleasure, both of which are addressed in the film Get Out, is an obvious message here. Lakeith Stanfield, the first person to appear in the film, plays Andre Hayworth and Logan King. It is Andre that we first meet, walking through a seemingly quiet, leafy suburb at night. We feel his discomfort as a car passes and slows, eventually stopping. We sense, with rising dread, his fear as he turns back to avoid a confrontation. Then, before the credits have even rolled, he is grabbed, subdued, and tossed into the back of a car, all in the middle of the street, without one person coming to help him. The scene plays out at night, but it is far from silent and far from hidden. There's little mystery in the fact that this is a stereotypically middle-class white neighbourhood. Andre is kidnapped, with no one around to stop it. Stanfield returns later in the film as Logan, a seemingly mild-mannered black man who is attending a party that the Armitages throw. Chris approaches him, finally confident to find another black person with whom he can converse. Good to see another brother around here. <sighs> yes, of course it is. Something wrong? There you are. <laughs> you do something with this. Yes, yes. Oh, hello. I'm Philomena, and uh, and you are. Chris, Rose's boyfriend. Fantastic. You two make a lovely couple. Thanks. Ah, oh, where are my manners? Logan, Logan King. Chris was just telling me how he felt much more comfortable with my being here. That's nice. Everything about the scene is off. Chris spots it straight away. The slow, measured movement of Logan, the careful speech, and the juxtaposition of this young black man with an older white woman. Everything about the imagery as presented portrays a sense of servitude, of inequality, and again, domesticity. Chris takes Logan's picture, the flash of his phone accidentally erupting and freeing, for a moment, Andre within. This gives us our great scene of Andre charging Chris, urging him to get out, get out. A trickle of blood runs from his nose, a telling sign in an otherwise mostly bloodless feature. There is violence at play here, and Chris is sure to be the next victim. So, why doesn't he take Andre's advice? Why doesn't he get the hell out? That's Dre. Dre. Andre Hayworth. Used to kick it with Veronica. Veronica from what? Teresa's sister that worked at the movie theater on 8th. Yeah. Yes, that is him. That is him. But wait, 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 wait. This is so fucking, fucking crazy. Yo, he's different. No shit. Why is he dressed like that? It's not that. It's everything. He came to the party with a white woman like 30 years old now. Sex slave! Oh, shit. Chris, you gotta get the fuck up out of there, man. You in some high-wide shit situation? Leave, motherfucker. Lil Rel Howry Jr., born Milton Howry Jr., plays Rod, TSA agent, who is a substitute for the audience in Get Out. From the off, he's present to ask the questions that are burning on everyone's mind. Once Chris starts to notice the strange things around him, why doesn't he leave? The fact is, in horror films, historically, to be a black person is to have your death warrant signed before the film truly gets going. This is something that Get Out dangles directly in the face of the audience. Chris is driving to his doom, surely. Walter and Georgina, the only other black people present until the arrival of Logan, seem deliriously happy to be working for the Armitages. 
Chris seems to be the only one who notices the racial imbalance, or at least the only one who comments on it. Without a voice like Rod's in the film, it would be stretching the audience's disbelief to simply not address these facts. So Chris frequently checks in with Rod, initially to ensure that his friend is taking care of his dog, then, as the story unfolds, he gets Rod to start checking on some of the odd things that are occurring. What Chris does not notice, thanks to Rose's timely intervention, is the silent auction. Key and Peel parodied slave auctions in their sketch show. For the full impact of what these truly were, let us look at one example. The Great Slave Auction, held on March 2nd and 3rd, 1859, near Savannah, Georgia. Over two days... 429 people were sold. Pierce Mees Butler had been left his estate by his grandfather, but had racked up an enormous amount of gambling debt. The sale of his mansion, $30,000, was not enough to cover his debt, so the entire slave labour force was to be sold. Savannah was picked as it was near the estate and was a hub for slave trading in the south. The slaves were lined up on a race course so that they could be inspected, it was stipulated that no families would be separated in the sale. If anyone wanted to buy a member of a family, they needed to buy all members of that family. There would also be those who would break this rule in the aftermath. The slaves were housed in barns over two days, fed small amounts of rice, beans and cornbread, huddling together as family units while their numbers dwindled. Though 436 had been authorised for sale, only 429 were bought, the remainder either returned to the Butler estate or had been left out due to illness. The prices varied from $250 at the cheapest to $1,750 at the most expensive. Often, the shade of their skin colour would decide price, as with their skill set. Some had been trained in the use of machinery, while others were more adept at working fields by hand. All had experience in both rice and cotton farming. The two-day event was chronicled by a journalist working on behalf of Horace Greeley, editor of the New York Tribune, who was himself an abolitionist. This journalist reported the inhuman treatment of the slaves, with the potential buyers walking them, opening their mouths to inspect their teeth, pinching their muscles to see how strong they were. He described the variety in reactions to the buyers. One man, who had pinned his hope on one particular prospector, convinced the man to buy himself, his wife and his two children, the reporter related somewhat sadly of the earnestness of which he did so, knowing that his potential future happiness depended on this buyer. Others engaged in proceedings with catatonia, responding only to direct orders, barely moving otherwise. Still others pretended to be lame in some way or another. One woman claimed her left foot was lame and was made to walk up and down the stage, ascend and descend the stairs, and undergo other tests. She eventually sold for $695. There was advantage, the reporter claims, to lameness. A lame slave was of lower value than one in full health and could, perhaps, hope one day to buy their own freedom. When all was done, the total sales came to $303,850. In 2022, that is worth roughly $10,860,767. Not that those sold would ever see a penny of this. In Get Out, while Chris speaks with Rose, the auction that is held back at the house occurs when the audience is still largely unaware of what's really happening. The highest bidder is a blind art dealer with whom Chris had interacted earlier. As a photographer, Chris's work had appealed to him, at least as it had been described by the man's assistants. 
In this exchange, there is finally a feeling of almost professional comfort between the two men, something to allow the audience to breathe. Watching this same dealer bid for Chris, this comfort is torn away. Now we come to the main twist of the film. What exactly are the Armitages doing, and what does it have to do with Chris? Patriarch of the family, Dean, is played by Bradley Whitford. He is a neurosurgeon who, we are told in advance, would have voted for Obama a third time if he could. The line that became iconic originally was a surprise joke to Whitford, who didn't realise it was tongue-in-cheek. Whitford is best known for his performance as Josh Lyman in Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing. The character can easily be described as an affable white liberal. Whitman joked that Peel just wanted to see Lyman chop off the top of a man's head, simply because it was funny. In reality, Dean Armitage is a performative liberal in public circles. He is every part the welcoming father when Chris and Rose arrive, gently jibing Chris about learning to say yes to their partners. He makes them feel a little more comfortable about the deer that they struck with their car along the way, claiming them to be a menace. As if to back up this point, there is a deer head mounted on the wall in one of the rooms. Clearly the Armitages are not opposed to hunting or blood sport. Taking Chris on a tour of the garden, Dean drops his Obama line, then proceeds to deal with the elephant in the room, namely the presence of Walter and Georgina. He explains that after his parents became ill, they were both hired to care for them. They became part of the family, and Dean couldn't bear to part with them. This scene obviously is a clue as to what's coming, but it's also an example of dark humour. You see, nothing that Dean says is a lie here. Therefore, he could potentially hold his head up and claim that he was honest with Chris from the off. It may be an honesty that comes with interpretation, but honesty nonetheless. So, when he states to Chris, I would have voted for Obama a third time if I could have, best president in my lifetime, it's more than possible that, at least in Whitford's portrayal of the man, he was being completely truthful. Take the appropriation of black people in this film. Should best president refer to the government policy or the man's personality? Or does it, perhaps, refer to the physical man himself in the context of what's happening at the Armitage's house? It really could go either way. Of course, Dean is not alone. Missy Armitage is played by Catherine Keener in a subdued, chilling performance. She is the stereotypical mom figure when the couple arrive, warm and welcoming, all smiles. She only seems to take umbrage when she discovers that Chris is a smoker. This opens the door, figuratively and literally, to her therapy space. Dean tells Chris that Missy could hypnotise him free of his addiction. He politely declines. The hypnotism of Chris is, however, inevitable, and serves up one of the film's most disturbing yet gripping scenes. All of this is accompanied by the sounds of a teacup, with a little scrape, scrape, scrape of the spoon along its side, lulling Chris into a stupor, that he barely has a chance to see coming. Missy preys on Chris, going straight to the source of the man's inner pain. You see, Chris's mother died when he was a child. She was the victim of a hit and run. Chris has harboured guilt about the fact he knew she was late coming home, yet never called anyone to check on her. In his mind, he is responsible for her death. At this point in the film, the audience might be forgiven for expecting Missy to say words of encouragement. You think it was your fault? How do you feel now? I can't move. You can't move. Why can't I 
when you did nothing. You did nothing. Now, sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. Now, Chris is in the sunken place. The sunken place has already entered the public shorthand. Jordan Peele tweeted about its meaning after the film's release. The sunken place of the film is an imagined state akin to sinking through water, yet still able to see and breathe. In reality, the sunken place is a state in which black or marginalised people live, silenced by society, regardless of how hard they scream. It would go on, again, thanks to the film's continued twists, to take on another meaning. Peel tweeted out that pro-golfer Tiger Woods had entered the sunken place after it was announced that he would be teeing off on the golf course with then-President Trump. Here, the sunken place became a state of subservience despite open and obvious hostility. When a person has entered the sunken place, are they, however, truly responsible for their actions? In Get Out, the sunken place is where the minds of those black people captured by the Armitages and their society friends are deposited. They are able to watch and hear everything that is happening around them, but they are prisoners in their own minds, unable to affect control of anything. While a bright flash can generate a seizure-like response from a captured body, like what happened to Logan slash Andre, it is generally an irreversible procedure. Dean, the head of the family, quite literally carves the tops of heads from bodies, switching out brains, delivering elderly or enfeebled white people into these, in their own words, superior specimens. That is the fate that awaits Chris if he can't get out of there. Despite the clues, despite the strange behaviour of Walter, such as running like a sprinter in the dark of night, or Georgina, who continually unplugs his phone from its charger or stands transfixed by her own reflection, despite the alarming antics of Jeremy, Rose's brother, who initially wanted to wrestle with Chris before threatening him with a lacrosse bat, Chris takes too long to finally make his move to escape. In that time, he makes one final discovery. And it's a little box, full of photographs, hidden away in Rose's room. Where are those keys, Rose? You know I can't give you the keys, right, babe? The rest of the film plays out in a series of reveals, shocks and terror-inducing images. Chris is bound to a chair, forced to watch a video by Roman Armitage, Rose's grandfather, explaining how he mastered this technique of switching bodies. Rose prepares to capture her next victim, unmasked now as the clinical tactician that she is. Dean prepares the operation room. All hopes seem to lie on Rod. Throughout the film, the comic relief has also been the churning investigation behind what's happening. Rod is the one who sees that all is not well. Rod is the one who discovers that Logan is Andre. Rod is the one who approaches the police after Chris fails to answer his phone. He does absolutely everything right and is trumped at each turn. The police laugh at him, believing his tale of sex slaves and mind control to be nonsense. The tone of the film from this point is a very careful balance of dead serious and slapstick, something that is handled with great care. Rod calls Rose, figuring out quickly that she is behind Chris's disappearance. However, the call ends when she, aware she is being recorded, begins to claim that Rod has always come between her and Chris. Rod's tone threatens to derail the scene. Um, 
So last time I talked to Chris, he told me your mama hypnotized him. Rod, just stop. Huh? I know why you're calling. Why is that? <laughs> it's kind of obvious, don't you think? What? That there's something between us. No, what you talking about, girl? I called you about Chris. No, Rod, whenever we'd go out, I remember you looking at me. What the fuck you know? Chris is my best friend. Hey, look, if you give something to him... I know you think about fucking me, Rod. It's precisely Rod's tone, breaking the tension, that is open to interpretation. Is it the right tone for this point in the film? The character is certainly consistent, yet is there too much levity in his frustration? Alison Williams plays her part straight, holding that theme on a razor's edge. There is a very, very small chance that if the scene were any longer, the mood of the film would be lost altogether. Levity works sparingly in horror. Rod, the humour's saviour, could also be the horror's downfall. Below the armitages, Chris waits for his fate, aware now that he is to be harvested so that the blind art dealer can have his eyes. There's little ambiguity in his escape. Scratching at the armrest of his chair, he pulls out the cotton within, using it to stuff his ears. This allows him to escape the hypnosis trap Missy has laid on him. He is able to overpower Jeremy, and he is able to kill Dean using the same deer head from the wall, and then Missy as well. Though he has to double-tap Jeremy, leading to one of the most violent scenes in the film, he eventually makes it outside, gets in the car, and almost makes a clean break. He then hits Georgina. Again, he is faced with a black woman, hit by a car lying in the road. While the audience may be screaming at him to get out, there is of course no other option than to at least try and save her. It answers two questions for us. First, what kind of man is Chris that he could knowingly abandon any hope of salvation for the woman? Second, is there any hope at all? Jordan Peele wrote that a line was cut from the scene that followed, fearing that it would telegraph a little too much about the true identity of Walter and Georgina. However, Rose, when walking out and brandishing a rifle, threatening to shoot Chris down, playing on his earlier mocking fear of being chased off the lawn by her father with a shotgun, she audibly and obviously mutters grandma when Chris leaves with Georgina. The car crashes, Walter runs to them. Go get him, grandpa, says Rose. It's too much. The line wasn't needed, as by this stage the audience could have made this leap for themselves. There are enough references to Grandpa Armitage's running past, along with the scene of Walter sprinting in the night, it takes only a little bit of deduction to realise that these two people really are part of the family. The line that was cut would have seen Walter holding Chris by the throat, referencing a race in which Jesse Owens beat Roman in the Olympic qualifiers. Thankfully, it too was chopped before filming. By this stage in the film, the audience knows who is who, what their roles are, and more lines like this only serve to slow the film in its final act. For the final scene in the film... There are two versions. Both see Chris pinned by Walter. Both see Walter freed, momentarily, by Chris, using the flash on his phone. Both see Walter take the rifle from Rose, turn, and shoot her before killing himself. It's here that they diverge. In the released ending, 
Chris holds Rose by the throat as she smiles up at him, taunting him. He is then lit by red and blue flashing lights. In this stomach-churning moment, it seems as though the police have arrived. There are simply too many stories in the news of black people being detained without prompt or delay by police in the years both before and after Get Out's release for the audience to have any other reaction than this. Chris is absolutely screwed. There's no jury on the planet that would believe his story if he survived long enough to stand before one. That realisation is written all over Daniel Kaluuya's face as he slowly stands, hands over his head. On the ground, Rose cries for help, certain she is safe. The lights belong to Rod, driving his Transportation Security Administration vehicle. In this version of the ending, he has come to save Chris and together they leave while Rose bleeds to death on the ground. Behind them, the house burns. This reflected the era in which Get Out was released. By 2017, the United States was dealing with the news of Trayvon Martin's murder, along with Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Walter Scott, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile. In the years that followed, America would of course be rocked by the protests following George Floyd's murder, along with Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. Kaluuya himself, as already mentioned earlier in the podcast, was a victim of racial profiling in the UK. Peel decided, based on this new era, and after receiving feedback from test screenings, that the released ending was the way to go. In the alternate ending, included on physical media and available online, this shows what would probably be a sadly more realistic ending. In this version, it is in fact the police who arrive and find Chris choking Rose. Though they don't fire the most unrealistic version in this ending, they do take him into custody and charge him with the murders of the Armitage family, Walter and Georgina. Though Rod visits him in prison and attempts to learn the names of those others who benefited from the Armitage's technique, Chris just sadly says that knowing they've stopped it is enough for him. Both endings are powerful conclusions to a bleak film. The lie that inspired Get Out, that America had entered a post-racial period after Obama's election, is shattered in the film by the actions of the affluent white people who profess inclusion. In the real world, Get Out was released in the first year of arguably the most divisive four years of United States politics in decades, with protests and a rising national anger over racial divisions in the country. Get Out leaves the viewer with the unquestionable conclusion that Chris is saved by chance alone. Though the Armitages are one family, who is to say that they are the only ones who are engaging in this practice? Certainly, Pierce Mies Butler was not the only man who owned slaves in 1859. The country was not simply split between good folks and bad folks. There are still some 20 to 30 active Ku Klux Klan groups active in the United States today. If there is one message that the film can leave the audience with, it's this. Look deeper. Don't trust the fake smiles and the woke statements. True inequality is still rampant. For every lucky Chris who escapes, there are those who aren't so fortunate. Get Out is an uncomfortable reminder that performative activism and wokeism is simply that. And it's an incredible achievement. Run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run, run, run. Run, rabbit, run, rabbit, run, run, run. Bang, 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 bang goes the farmer's gun. Thank you for listening to You're On Crackmate. 
I'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons, Albert Hogan, Sarah Davis, Toby Braithwaite, Pranakasha Productions, John Preeper, Stephen Leninsky, Lionel L, Alan Oldshark and Dan Decker. Please consider supporting Euron Crackmate by signing up to Patreon. Please following the podcast over on Twitter at EuronCrackPod. Get in touch with us. If there is a film you'd like to see covered, please don't hesitate to ask. The sources used in the research for this episode are available in the description. Stay tuned for a sneaky clip for the next film on this pod. See you in two weeks. Thanks. A little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Haven't you? <laughs>